TGIM Team RE. This is episode 325. I used to drink at people when I was upset, and those were always really, really bad nights. Mm. But I believed that like alcohol helped calm me down and like got me out of the anger. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Odette Kressler. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Jillian. Jillian took her last drink November 9th, 2019. She loves playing video games and she is from Boston. Before I get going with this week's show, I wanted to give a special thank you and shout out to Groovy. Groovy is one of our sponsors for our upcoming Bozeman retreat. Groovy's mission is to help others be healthy and stay social one drink at a time. Groovy created a line of craft non-alcoholic beers and wine that are delicious. My favorite is a non-alcoholic Prosecco. If you want to check out everything that they have and get a nice discount, head over to getgroovy.com. That's getgroovy.com and use the promo code RecoveryElevator at checkout. Recovery Elevator all in lowercase. And of course, friendly reminder, if non-alcoholic beer and or wine is something that is triggering to you on your journey, protect your energy and just take a pass on checking out their products. You know, you have to be your own advocate and we are here to support you. If this is something that you feel could be a slippery slope, maybe it's a no. Stick to the soda water. All righty, let's work on finding your better you. Lately, I've been thinking a lot about death. <laughs> it sounds very morbid. I actually am really scared of death. It's just a personal fact. Just thinking about dying gives me really high anxiety. <laughs> I'm trying to work through this with my therapist. But I wanted to share something that I read a few months ago, maybe even a year ago, in a book called Untethered Soul. It's been mentioned on the show, but there's a specific chapter that I read. It, it, it stayed with me and I've just been remembering it more and more lately. The chapter talked about death. So the author, Michael A. Singer, was talking about death and how having an active relationship with death is actually healthy. I didn't really understand when he was talking at the beginning of the chapter about having a good relationship with death, but I read on, I stayed open and curious, and I see his side. Here's a, here's a quote that I pulled up from the book that says, it is truly a great cosmic paradox that one of the best teachers in all of life turns out to be death. No person or situation could ever teach you as much as death has to teach you. While someone could tell you that you are not your body, death shows you. While someone could remind you of the insignificance of the things that you cling to, death takes them all away in a second. While people can teach you that men and women of all races are equal and there is no difference between rich and the poor, death instantly makes us all the same. He later talks about how keeping death at the forefront of your mind on a day-to-day basis really helps you stay in the moment. You know, if we truly 
believe the truth that is true, the truth that says this could be your last moment, this could be your last breath, we would perhaps waste less time thinking about the future or being stuck in the past, right? If we truly believed that every instant could be our last, then maybe we could stop taking things for granted. That's when I liked what I was reading. Because I don't know about you all, but for me, staying in the present moment is a big, big challenge. And, you know, I get distracted. I scroll on my phone for too long. I get my dip days with my depression where I feel like I'm in this paralyzed floating mode instead of being grounded. There are so many things that prevent me from being in the present moment. And I'm human. But what I have noticed lately is that as much as I have my dips, I also have my moments of just full presence. And I came back to this chapter because I was sitting down in the living room and my son was playing with his trucks. And all of a sudden, instead of being in my head, I just saw him. He turned around, looked at me, and he just gave me a little smile and then went back to playing. And I know that I was present because I felt like this wave of joy that kind of went from head to toe really quick and then it was gone. And I know that I'm experiencing really deep joy when I just cry when good things are happening. I cry all the time, by the way, guys, but he didn't do anything. You know, lately he says, hey, you're my best friend, mom. Hey, I love you. And of course, those things will make me have a reaction. But he kind of just acknowledged that I was there. He looked over, he smiled, he went back to his truck. And I just felt like that was enough for me to feel all of the joy, like in a second. And I thought about this book and Michael A. Singer. And I thought about this chapter I thought maybe this is what he was talking about. Maybe in this moment, I was able to feel how everything is in this moment. And just like everything is here now, everything could be gone in the next moment. And I feel like we're just hardwired to believe that it's not going to happen to us. You know, we're not going to be the ones who are in a car accident. We're not going to be the ones who get a terminal disease. We're not going to be the ones that just get a heart attack all of a sudden. But that's not really guaranteed. And that stuff that does happen to those people, they thought that it wasn't going to happen to them. And it did. So maybe there's something to this, right? I know I really haven't linked all of this death talk to sobriety. But here's my attempt. When we choose sobriety and when we choose to pursue this path, we remove a huge block. That The block of alcohol is gone. You know, that block if I'm not mistaken, for most of us listening to the show, it was an obstacle preventing us to be in the present moment. And it wasn't the only obstacle, because like I said, alcohol is no longer in my life, but I have other obstacles that are blockers for me to stay here now. But but alcohol was a, a big, a heavier block. So now that that's gone, we are presented with this opportunity to be fully here. And although it does take practice, I think that one of the biggest motivators for me in staying on this journey and staying sober, because believe it or not, I still romanticize sometimes that I can be a moderate drinker, 
One of the biggest motivators for me are moments where I can feel it all just like the moment I shared with my son. You know, moments where I can actually understand what being present is. Because when I first started reading about being fully present, I was like, okay, I get it conceptually, but what does it feel like? And I feel like I've only been able to access what it actually feels like the more time I spend away from alcohol. This isn't a dress rehearsal. We're all going to die. As much anxiety as that thought gives me. So I'm hoping that this resonated with some of you. That actually thinking that this could be your last day, that this could be your last breath, really brings you back and makes you value what you have, honor where you're at, and be grateful. Be grateful for your sobriety. Don't take it for granted. Don't get complacent. I'm rooting for you. All right. Eso es todo. That's it for my intro today. And before we hear from Jillian, let's hear from my favorite resource on this journey, Cafe RE. For years, I tried to control my drinking on my own, but I always felt alone and like I needed something else. When I discovered Cafe RE, I realized there were so many people just like me looking for a better life. Cafe RE is a private, unsearchable Facebook group that provides 24-7 access to a community of people whose goal it is to live a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find authentic connection, love, and encouragement. With the supportive and educational chats hosted throughout the week, there are plenty of opportunities to connect with others on the same path. Cafe RE is a place where we grow and learn together. And with golden rule number 22, we have a lot of fun while doing it. For just $24 a month, you'll have access to the community, all of our online chats, the opportunity to attend in-person meetups, get discounts on sober travel trips, and get assigned an accountability partner. 15% of monthly membership even goes towards our service project, where we partner with nonprofits to help those affected by addiction. Head over to recoveryelevator.com and use the promotional code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. We hope to see you there. Jillian, welcome. How are you today? I'm good, thank you, and thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so happy that you decided to come on the show, and let's get right to it. When was the last time you had a drink? Um, so that would have been November 9th, uh, 2019. All right. And can you give listeners a little background about yourself? Can you let us know where you're from? What do you do for a living? Do you have a family? And what do you like to do for fun? So I am in the Boston area. I'm also a biochemist during the day. I work at one of the companies that's been in the news a bit lately. Mm. And yeah, for fun, I really like to play video games. I like to read, um, hang out with my husband. We don't have any children. We just have a kitty. Just regular old boring stuff. And now that's wonderful. <laughs> it is wonderful. I, I'm a proud grandma who likes slowing yep. <laughs> down and drinking tea and hanging out with my dog. So I hear you. <laughs> Awesome, Jillian. And can you give us some background on your drinking? When did you start? When did you realize alcohol wasn't serving you? And when did you stop? So I didn't start until I was 22, actually. So I was a, a latecomer to drinking. I did have one glass of wine when I was 18 years old, when I was on a vacation, and it was legal to do so. And I remember 
I was hanging out with my brother and I had such intense shame from that one glass of wine and I didn't drink for four years. So I started drinking in grad school because that's what everybody did. And I had been bullied a lot as a kid. So I never really like fit in or had friends. And I just so desperately wanted people to like me. So I started just drinking what other people were drinking. Um, I started with Bud Lights because I had no idea what people (laughs) even drank. Mm -hmm. And it escalated very quickly, though. Once I once I like actually learned that it felt good, I went hardcore and I started messing up all the time, getting sick, drinking way too much, blacking out. A year later, I was a daily drinker. The following year, I was already trying to moderate because my tolerance had doubled Mm -hmm. and then I would try, I tried for five more years to moderate. And I, I believed in it so much, even though I had years and years of evidence mm. that it wasn't possible for me. And then eventually I gave in. Yeah, we all really want to make moderation work for us. <laughs> and I feel I, I relate. Um, I think a lot of the reasons why I feel like I've let go a little bit, but a lot of the reasons why I wanted moderation to work for me is because it would actually make me fit in and normal because I want to be a normal drinker, right? So I I think that's what kept me trying and trying. And I'm curious about what you mentioned about feeling and remembering that shame that you felt when you had that first glass of wine. Is it because you've been mostly a rule follower all your life and you felt like, like, where did that shame stem from, I guess, is my question. Yeah, so I do love rules to answer that question, love them, but I'm not exactly sure where the shame came from. I had a lot of trouble just liking who I was. I had even more trouble liking and accepting my body. I was always a relatively thin girl, but I still thought that I was fat and at that time when I was 18, I was already beginning to feel a lot of shame around foods that I ate, even though they were not bad choices. And yeah, I think it just came from, it was just a very shameful time Mm -hmm. in my life. So why not shame myself over another thing? Oh, I hear that. And then tell me a little bit more about this stretch of moderation attempts. What were some things that you tried to do? And then you also mentioned that your tolerance doubled. So you were noticing it and just just mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about that time in your life. So before I was a scientist, I was a teacher. Mm. And teaching is extremely stressful. And I used to call alcohol my fuel. So I would come home every day and I would drink because I learned that when you drink, the stress goes away and you feel better. So I had stress every day. So I drank every day. And my husband was... Um, a grad student at the time, and I was a teacher making like no money. So we were trying to save money and I switched to vodka over yellowtail wine. And that was what did it. And I was making these ridiculous cosmos every day when I would get home from teaching, I would just like, hey, honey, as I'm walking into the kitchen, and it was like, two thirds vodka. Um, you know, half of the remaining third was triple sec and then like a splash of diet cranberry juice. And eventually throughout the year of teaching, I got to two of those per night. And when that happened, I was like, wow, this is 
that's a lot of alcohol. This is not what I should be doing. And the strategies that I tried, I had rubber bands around my wrist for to like signify the number of drinks that I was allowed to have. And I would take one off every time I poured a drink. I had my husband pour my drinks for me. I tried to buy very strong wine when I switched back to wine drinking because I thought I would drink less. And then I tried to buy the weakest wine that I could find because I accepted that I would drink all of it. And I actually ended a good amount of friendships because I thought that, you know, I drank too much because I was hanging out with those people. And everything that I tried, I even had a journal, I would write down like, I think I wanted to have like 25 drinks a week was my moderation limit. Mm. And I started it on Monday. And then by like the weekend, I had no drinks left. So then I tried starting it on Friday. Mm. And then I had no drinks left like by Tuesday. So I abandoned that one quick. But yeah, I would research moderation strategies. I was so dedicated to it and it never worked. Do you think you tried so many things because you just were unwilling to live a life without it? Or why do you think you were so firm on, I'm going to make this work for me? <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question. So I could not imagine a life where I didn't drink alcohol. I couldn't imagine. I thought it would be the most sad, depressing, miserable life that anyone could live. I thought it would be the death of fun. And the people that my husband and I are friends with, our families, everybody drinks. And they all have fun. And drinking is a big part of how we socialize. It's it's the main part in some instances. And um even though I knew something was going on, I just, I kept saying like, you'll figure this out. <laughs> just, you know, try another thing. I went to therapy even. And I asked like, I'm worried that I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> and my therapist told me I wasn't. Mm -hmm. And that was, that probably set me back a couple years too. But I was, I don't know. I just, I thought if I tried enough things, I could keep it in my life. Yeah. And I wanted to just double click and ask you about that because like it is something that holds us back is this like I'm yeah. going to just grip this idea as hard as I can and I'm going to make it work for me. You know, it is so hard for us to imagine a life without alcohol, especially when we have no idea what that even looks like. So mm -hmm. thank you for sharing that because I do know it's a shared struggle And we try everything. We try all the rules. You did mention even like you had someone else, your husband, pour drinks for you. So did he know that you were struggling as well? Or how was the conversation between you two as you were trying to moderate? Yeah, so I talked to him a lot about my moderation attempts. And I would come to him with all these elaborate plans. He told me recently that he could tell that they were, they were extremely thought out. <laughs> and that I put a lot of work into it before I pitched it. And he just, I don't know, he just loved me and he, he just wanted to support me and help me. And, and he felt, I think, uncomfortable about trying to say, you know, maybe you shouldn't be drinking. And I don't know, he was just always so nice to me. He was so willing, whatever I wanted to try, he was just so willing to do it. He's a normal drinker, by the way. So like he doesn't care about alcohol at all. And yeah, he never told me that he thought 
there was something going on. He was just, he was like, yay, moderation. Let's try this one. You've got this. I love hearing that he had your support. And I think one of the biggest challenges for couples where there is a partner that is a normal drinker and a partner that's a problematic drinker is that a lot of the times it's that desire to change the partner who is a problematic drinker. And I just love that he mm -hmm. met you where you're at. I think a lot of the times that's exactly what we need. And we need to be met where we're at, to be supported where we're at. And of course, there are other instances where there needs to be there needs to be an interruption of the drinking because it's life or death. And there are many cases like that. But I feel like there are a lot of gray area drinkers or high functioning drinkers where, you know, no matter how much someone else wants them to change, the change comes <laughs> when they're ready. And it sounds like he was just very patient. And how has it been now that you've been sober for over a year? Our relationship is much better. We were having a lot of issues in our marriage the last like, year or two of my drinking, and, and we are better than ever, better than even the very beginning. It's like we're dating again almost because we, we would just get drunk together and kind of talk about nothing and do nothing. And now we are actually talking about our lives and our thoughts. So it's wonderful. And that was something I was scared about too, that we wouldn't be able to connect because mm -hmm. he doesn't have to get sober. And it's quite the opposite, right? Yeah, it's better. And he didn't have a problem with that. Like he was just normal. He's like, yep, this is the new, the new life. I'm sure we'll figure it out. And I was so terrified. Yeah. And like you said, it is like you are almost exploring this new relationship, this new marriage, even though you guys have been together before, because mm -hmm. it's just a, a change in dynamics. And it is scary. And it is sometimes at the beginning of that transition, a little bit awkward. You know, I, I talk about this often, like recovery sometimes is awkward or sobriety is awkward. I remember our first, my husband's and I first vacation where I wasn't drinking. It was just a little bit awkward because we used to travel a certain way and have certain certain dynamics, like going to different breweries and, and having drinks before dinner. And then I was like, okay, what are we going to do? It took us a while to kind of get the ball rolling on a new dynamic. So it's just like a transitional chapter of change. And I'm glad to hear that you guys are connecting well and that you're discovering new things about each other because it is exciting that you guys get to actually have conversations you can remember now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a plus and not try to do um, reconnaissance the next day. Yeah. So what exactly happened after these four, five years where you were attempting to implement rules and have moderation attempts, how did you end up deciding to finally quit? So my mental health really declined. Um, it started the last like four years of my drinking, but I was able to ignore it until the last year and a half or so. And I developed anxiety, which is not something that I've ever struggled with or that I do struggle with now in sobriety. And I would be up all night with panic attacks and just feeling really strange, like the room would zoom out and I felt so far away. And of course, my husband was <laughs> awake with me every time, um, getting no sleep too. And then, you know, I kept on drinking like yeah, anxiety, a lot of people have it, whatever. And then eventually, I also developed suicidal thoughts. And that 
started to scare me because I was afraid. Like, if I'm feeling this horrible when I'm drunk, I could actually do something about this. And I challenged myself to not drink for 90 days. So that was my very last moderation attempt. And I thought I would be cured. I just needed a healthy reset, get out of the habit. And I did the 90 days just fine. I was loving life. It was amazing. And then on day 91, I got drunk. I didn't follow my moderation Mm -hmm. rules. And then I drank for a few more months. And then the suicidal thoughts and the anxiety returned very quickly. And I quit for good in November. And just because of fear of what could happen to me if I didn't quit. Wow. Thank you for sharing that because that is vulnerable. And and you know, it's hard when we when we are in it. It is extremely hard, but I feel like in hindsight, just by listening to your story and seeing how you caught yourself almost repeat that pattern to where even after abstaining for three months, you went back out and you you ended up right where you had left off. And I know we talk about this <laughs> often, but it's like you have that data now to where you know I already know where I'm going if I keep drinking. You know, I already know the outcome. And that was something that you and I have in in common. You know, I had struggled with an eating disorder and already had gone to rehab, already had done all of these, had had all these emotional rock bottom moments. And I was like, I already know where I'm going to end up. And it's weird because we don't know where we are going to end up with sobriety. And even though we know it's what's best for us, it's still scary. So it's kind of weird how the bad stuff, sometimes it's what's familiar. Does this ring a bell at all? Oh, definitely. Yeah. And I I had these very strong beliefs that everyone would label me and think I was a loser and that it meant that I failed at life and I was a weak person. And I I just wanted to be like, everybody else, like we were saying in the beginning, and I wanted to go to parties and drink and, you know, go to wineries and whatever. And I didn't want to be like the only one. And I think that's part of why I fought so hard. Were you resentful at all? Oh, yeah. (laughs) I, um, in almost 15 months of sobriety, anger has been my biggest struggle. And That was very surprising for me because I'm not really, I'm more of a depressed kind of person or very excitable and happy. And anger was a new feeling and I would get overcome with rage all the time and I couldn't control it and it would last for days. And I was mad at my husband. I was mad at my family because I thought everybody knew and no one like tried to say anything to me. So it's it's been a lot of processing and And now I can say, like, I don't have rage attacks. I do feel anger, but I can still, like, exist and live my life. But, yeah, anger was was huge for me, and it was really, really surprising. Thanks for sharing that, too. It's a a different type of symptom, and I feel like it's a symptom that almost makes us even believe that it was better when we were drinking. You know, like, when I was drinking, I wasn't throwing these fits and... And, you know, being mad at my husband. So I don't know. I feel like it's weird because it was processing. And I think your your emotions just had to come out. But I feel like it's so interesting how the brain works and how even then, at least for me, what happened also experiencing anger after sobriety is like, 
oh, I should just go back to drinking because then I don't get this angry. But obviously, that's not the solution. But the brain is just so sneaky. Yeah. And I used to I used to drink at people when I was upset. And those were always really, really bad nights. Mm. But I believed that like alcohol helped calm me down and like got me out of the anger. I thought that it helped me process it and and help me deal with it and manage it. And it was really doing the opposite of that because those nights were really the worst when I was like drinking in anger. But yeah, once you deal with that anger, you can come out the other side. Like it's not a permanent thing that I was worried about. I would be like this rage lady, like yelling at everybody for all eternity. (laughs) 15 months in, Jillian, do you feel like that initial motivator that was more fear-based and you were scared of the thoughts you were having, of the feelings that you were feeling with anxiety. Do you think you've made kind of a shift to where your motivation has changed from fear perhaps to like, oh, this is actually good for me? Yeah. And it's a lot of acceptance too. And like you said earlier, data. Um, So it's factual now the way I look at it. Like if I go back to drinking even 20 years from now, I will repeat the same pattern I will have anxiety and suicidal thoughts and I'll be risking my life. And it's just factual to me. Um, There's no emotion behind it. And I also think about all of the wonderful things that I have gained in sobriety. And I know that every single one of those things will disappear Mm -hmm. if I return to drinking. You've probably seen it. There's a quote circulating over the past week in the recovery community. Um, It says that addiction is giving up everything for one thing and recovery is giving up one thing for everything. And that really resonated with me because that's literally what my experience was. Like I can have alcohol or I can have everything else and there's no in between there. I love that. And I did see that quote and that little, it almost seemed like someone wrote it on a post-it note. And it's very powerful because like you mm-hmm. said, it, it you, it's one or the other. And we're so in denial about that, but it's the truth. And I interviewed someone earlier today and, and a question I'll ask you and that I asked her earlier was like, what has recovery given to you? And her question was everything, you know, choosing this has given me everything without this, there's nothing. It's so simple. But like I said earlier, too, when we're in it, it's so hard to remove Mm -hmm. all the layers of resistance and to live in acceptance, because it is a process. I think acceptance is one of those concepts like, ooh, acceptance, surrender, like, oh, I don't (laughs) want to hear it. Like, what does that even mean? (laughs) But I love that you've been working on that. And did anything happen on November 9th that was different, Jillian? Or did you just how how was that the last day? Did you have a huge rock bottom moment or were you just sick and tired of being sick and tired? So that was the anniversary of a traumatic experience that I had when I was younger. And it was the 11 year anniversary of it. And I was usually fine every year, but the 10 year one I stayed up till two o'clock in the morning, like getting drunk and crying and like drunk texting people is horrible. And that year I was going to go into it with a plan. I was going to almost celebrate and plan this whole good day and keep myself busy just in case I got upset. And it all started with a boozy brunch at 11 o'clock. And then I stupidly bought a bottle of wine on the way home from the bar and drank that and then went to another bar 
So by like 6 p.m., I was just destroyed. And I think it was probably the worst night of all those scary thoughts. I actually didn't sleep the entire night. I'm, I made the decision to quit at 5.30 in the morning. My husband and I were watching the sun come up, and I just said to him, I can never drink ever again. And I recognize that, like, I just can't. I'm just someone who can't. And I felt super calm when I felt that way and or when I thought that, I mean, and yeah, I still feel the same way today. So it was a very powerful day. And, and I choose to celebrate that day instead of like, I guess the 10th is technically the like the one day. Mm-hmm. But I've chosen to make the ninth now into like the most amazing day ever instead of like a reminder of a bad day. So I celebrate that as like my soberversary. How did you celebrate your one year? So we're in quarantine, so we didn't have a lot of options, but we went to an Airbnb up in Maine and it had, it was like in the middle of nowhere. It had a fire pit and a really cool hot tub and Mm. a fireplace inside. And it was such a nice little house. And I had never been in a hot tub actually. So yeah, it was fun. And I just like, we talked about how great I am. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, my husband's good like that. He's he's very willing to just talk about me and my stuff for like 10 hours. <laughs> I love that. I feel like I get more excited about sober birthdays now than my real birthday. And I love my real birthday. So that's a lot to say. <laughs> I'm glad you celebrated because it is important. And I mean, it's important to celebrate ourselves and to have people that celebrate us. And it's just something that we're not used to. It's so much easier to talk about ourselves in a negative way. Mm -hmm. And that's weirdly more normalized and more accepted. So I'm happy to hear that that's how you celebrate it. Plus hot tubs are always a great idea. (laughs) Yeah, I would definitely do it again. How were those first 30 days for you, Jillian? Because I know those are hard, not only on the body, but it's just, I don't know how it was for you. But for a lot of people, it's just this push pull between the brain trying to convince us, oh, it wasn't that bad, you know, just trying to pull out all the stops. And you were very rooted and calm when you decided that you were done. But how did you get through the beginning of this journey, which is hard because you're detoxing the mind, the body, the soul, everything? Yeah. And I quit at a very hard time, uh, like right at the start of the holiday season. Yeah. And there were so many parties like family parties, friend parties, company parties. And that was hard. I went to a lot of parties at like one month sober. Christmas, I was like six weeks sober and everybody was drinking. I was the only one like I had expected, but I don't deal with cravings or or like my mind trying to tell me it's okay because of that very powerful acceptance that I felt and having that very strong data that I know what will happen if I go back. But I think the hardest part is people questioning. I had a lot of coworkers very loudly at parties say like, you're still not drinking? What's going on? And it's like, come on, man. (laughs) Why do you have to say that in front of everybody that I work with? And yeah, just navigating. um, People felt a little uncomfortable around me because I'm all of a sudden this like 
sober person who loves life. And before I was, you know, this drunk girl who just wanted to party and be sloppy. So I, I stopped getting invited to some things and that was hard, but it balanced out and I actually made some very strong friendships with mm. people who were in my life, but they weren't big drinkers. So it worked out for me. And I did have a lot of night sweats since you mentioned detoxing. <laughs> that was that was a funny time in my marriage because yeah, my husband had to deal with those those alcohol sweats. Yeah, changing the sheets. <laughs> yeah, it was bad. Oh, he gets a lot of brownie points from me. Just let him know that he's a keeper in my book. <laughs> you know what? I, I, I love that you mentioned that about about people and in a way the acceptance going back to the acceptance is is something that is going to be layered on top of everything, not just the decision and the awareness that you can't drink, but acceptance that, you know, you're not going to invite, get it, get invited to every party or that some people are going to have to take more of a backseat in your life. It's acceptance across the board. And I'm not going to say the name of someone who told me this story because I want to keep them anonymous, but it was a work trip. And a lot of these corporate work trips, they always have a lot of uh, booze involved. And it was the first or second sober work trip. And the way that he noticed that he wasn't getting invited to whatever next stop was after dinner is that he instead of an eavesdrop, like he saw someone else's text message, like the person who was sitting next to him that were texting where to go next. All of them were texting between each other, but he wasn't including in the text conversation because they just didn't want to talk about it at the table. And they were trying to be polite and they didn't want to not say it out loud, but also made him feel left out. I feel like it's this weird dynamic where even people that we know that we're probably not going to have in our lives, they're they don't know how to react either. You know, like nobody knows what to say or how to act. And then they feel like we're the sober ones. So we're observing everything. So it's just once again, awkward. But I'm really glad you worked through that. And did you feel strong after the holiday season? I feel like after those first parties, first holidays, there's like a new level of found confidence too, because you're like, oh, I got done. I got that done. And I could do it. It gave me a lot of confidence, too, for this year's holiday season. I feel like a pro at this point. Yeah. Uh, there were some parties that I, when I came home, I like cried in my car for a second. But then, like, all the pride rushed in. And, and I would end parties because um, I'm in the city. So they would be at city bars. So I would leave the party when everyone started getting drunk and weird. And then I would go to Starbucks and I'd get myself something really nice. And I made it like, this little ritual. But yeah, pride, I think, is one of the most important feelings for me. And it's carried me through so much. And even the hard times, just feeling proud of yourself and that you like yourself and you approve of your decisions is, is a feeling that I wasn't used to feeling. Yeah, because then it feels like the opposite of what you shared that happened when you were growing up where you said, you know, I was drinking whatever was handed to me or whatever everyone else was drinking. It's almost like you went from people deciding things for you to finally you deciding things for yourself. And I think that's huge when you like zoom out and see that it's like now you're saying no to other people, but yes to yourself. And you kind of flip that script. Yeah. And I've set so many boundaries. I had zero boundaries before, but I have set so many boundaries in sobriety and it, it just feels really good to 
to show people, you know, what is okay and what is not okay. And, and to respect myself, like I had no respect for myself when I was drinking. So, you know, however anyone wanted to treat me, it was, I deserved it. But now I don't deserve any of that crap. I deserve people that care about me and and have my best interests in mind. Yes, I love that. Can you tell me a little bit more? I'm just curious. You were a teacher. So when did this Mm -hmm. career shift happen? Did it happen after your sobriety? No. Uh, So this was, I had so many moderation attempts. Um, It's hard to remember them all. It was another moderation (laughs) attempt, actually. So I said, you know, I am drinking so much. At that point, I was having a bottle of wine a night on weeknights and then more on the weekends. So I said, I am drinking this much because teaching is very stressful. It's a lot of hours. And if my job wasn't so stressful, I wouldn't have to drink so much. So I literally switched careers <laughs> so that I you know, could hope to moderate. And that's why I switched over to science because all of my degrees are science degrees. I don't have any education degrees. So it wasn't like a hard switch. I didn't have to go back to school or do anything like that. I already had the qualifications. But yeah, it was moderation. <laughs> yeah, it was like when people move cities or the geographical cure. So uh, yeah, I hear you. <laughs> yeah, I thought of that too, but it wasn't realistic with my <laughs> husband. <laughs> so I'm glad that when you are and scenarios where there's alcohol you mentioned you're just so firm and like I'm not going to drink you don't get those thoughts because you know where you will end up it's almost like you're consistently practicing the uh, follow the drink technique but what about Mm -hmm. just uncomfortable feelings and triggers what what happens when you get a challenge in life now what what do you do so what I did when I had those rage attacks is I would bake cookies, which I know that's like not the best thing to do is to use sugar when you're stressed, but just the act of putting the cookies in the oven and they smell nice and makes my husband happy, like that helped calm me down too, not just the sugar hit. And I I vent a lot to my husband and he does this really nice thing where like if someone was mean to me at work, he will get very passionate about it. He's like, oh, what a jerk. Like I can't even, that person's the worst person in the world. And he really gets into it. Mm-hmm. And it's just so satisfying for me. I I play a lot of video games that helps like playing Doom or something crazy <laughs> like that. I have therapy once a week. That helps me so much. Highly recommend to everybody. Is that something you've been doing since you got sober? Almost. So I started four months in like mm. Right when we went into quarantine, basically. Got it. Extremely helpful tool. Yeah. And I guess the triggers that I've had are like seeing people drink wine. So I can see my neighbors like in the summer on their porch drinking rosé and I'm so jealous. That's the feeling that I get. And my previous company, they they actually sent wine as gifts And I was so upset that I could potentially receive a bottle of wine delivered to my house with my name on it. My new company did the same thing for a party, but I was able to to get out of both of those deliveries. And I got like cans of seltzer instead. It wasn't very equal, but I think having wine like given to me is is something that's very upsetting. I think that's the thing that's got me the most. Then you're like, well, what do I do with this shit? I can't drink it. Yeah, it's like right in my face. Like, thanks. You know, thanks for showing me what I can't have. I appreciate it. (laughs) 
But wait, I'm curious. When you found out that you were getting wine, how did you intercept, if that's the right word, how did you interject? I think that's the right word. Uh, so that you, <laughs> So that you wouldn't get it. Did you talk to someone? Tell me about how vocal you are at work about the fact that you don't drink. Did you tell like someone like, I don't drink. Can you get me something else? Yeah, I don't tell people about my sobriety. I am still figuring that one out if I should or shouldn't. But the way that I got out of the wine deliveries was I told one person who seemed very nice and she was like in charge of the fun committee. And I told her, you know, some people don't drink and they don't like alcohol. Is there like a non-alcoholic option? And then there was an email sent around that you just had to reply to one person and request non-alcoholic. And in the same email, they talked about allergies and all of that. So it wasn't like a weird, you know, sober person alert email. And yeah, and we're having a cocktail party actually coming up. And I gave feedback again. And I said to the same person, and I said, you know, that's really nice to have a cocktail party on Zoom. That's so fun. For the people that don't drink, could we have mocktails of the same drink? So when everybody's learning how to make, you know, a Moscow mule, can they also teach how to make the mocktail version of that at the same time so that we can all participate? And I think the feedback was very well received and I didn't have to out myself or I'm just kind of pretending like, I don't like alcohol, which is, you know, the opposite is true. But yeah, no one has questioned me yet. And the fact that you are doing that is also laying the foundation for other people, you know, because you don't know how many other people are also not talking about it and don't want to talk about it and don't know how to approach it. And I think as someone who also works where those types of situations pop up, like I work in corporate and and it's just, you know, the the normalized thing is giving away wine and happy hours. And I think it's just something that a lot of professional cultures just haven't even thought about. So in a way, you're participating in a bigger cultural change. So that's awesome. That's good that you find a way to talk about it, that you still feel comfortable, but you're also still doing something about it. Yeah. And that, that wine delivery could completely explode someone's life. And that also gives me the courage to give feedback to one person and keep it private. But thinking that someone could get that wine delivery and they could be alone and they could have a huge trigger, a moment of weakness, whatever, and they could just go for it and it could ruin, you know, the next year of their life trying to get back into sobriety. And I wouldn't want that to happen to anybody if I could do something about it. I love that. Thanks, Jillian. Tell me about your anxiety now. How's that going? Is it gone completely? Or how did that evolve as the more time that you had sober? Yeah, no anxiety. It's gone. I'm back back to how I was before. I feel like I'm my 20-year-old self again. Um, I feel more like that person than I can relate to my, you know, 28 or 29, I'm 30 now, to my 28 or 29 year old self. So yeah, I'm completely anxiety free, which is wonderful. I thought like I blamed it on maybe I'm getting old, like I'm getting close to 30. <laughs> but no, it was it was alcohol. And what about sleep? I sleep like a teenager. <laughs> um, so 
when I was drinking, I would stay up all night and I would hate myself and have anxiety and think really scary thoughts. And I was getting like maybe four hours a night max on those really bad nights. And I was like so crazy and sleep deprived by the end. And now I go to sleep and I'm just asleep. I don't wake up a thousand times. I don't wake up and, you know, have to do a 2 a.m. shame fest. (laughs) And it's great. And I always get so surprised still, even now, like when I, when I wake up and it's been, you know, four hours or more, I'm like, wow, I can't believe I slept that long. Sleep is one of my favorite things in sobriety. I'm just out. It's so good and so deep and I feel so well rested. It's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. And I didn't think it was possible to have sleep that good. Um, It took, it took like maybe a couple months to get out of, you know, the disrupted sleep cycle that I was in. But once I adjusted and I started sleeping good, oh, I felt so amazing. Yeah, your body, you, like you said, it does take a little bit, but ultimately it, it ends up understanding like, oh, we're not drinking anymore. And, and, and slowly <laughs> but surely it stabilizes itself. How has your body image developed or change throughout all of this and I'm just asking this because you mentioned at the beginning that it was a struggle have you gained in gaining confidence has that also kind of shown itself in body image or how do you feel about that now yeah I've never had good body image my whole life even when I was very thin in college I still didn't think I was thin and I remember in May I walked by the mirror in my bedroom and I just glanced in the mirror and I had a thought, I was like, huh, looking pretty good. Mm -hmm. And then I stopped. I was like, whoa, (laughs) you're not thinking how your arms are fat or, you know, your back is fat or your face looks fat. (laughs) And that was the first time I've ever had that thought before. And now I can look in the mirror and actually like what I see. And that has been, I think, the most unexpected part of sobriety is is like having this other issue kind of resolve where before like getting dressed I would I would cry like when I would get ready for a date with my husband I would get dressed and cry or I would have the same two dresses that I wore every single time like over and over and over same outfit on every date And I just was so uncomfortable in myself, like who I was, but also like what I was. Yeah, it manifests physically. It's really strange also how the brain, almost like what you think is what you see, because it's the same, you know, data, like, like you, we've been talking about data. Every time I went back out and drank, for me, the data was I'm going to drink and nobody's going to know. I'm not going to tell anybody yet that I (laughs) have another day one, but I would wake up and the the way that I saw myself when I looked at myself in the mirror was just so distorted than on a day where I chose to commit and stay to my decision of sobriety. And it's so weird how you can look and feel so different from one day or one stage to the next. So it's it's a shift for sure. So I'm happy to hear that it's been an unexpected perk. And I'm glad it got better for you too. Yeah, thank you so much, Jillian. It definitely <laughs> got better. Looks like we've reached the rapid fire round. So if you can answer these questions in 30 seconds or less, that would be fabuloso. Are you ready? Yes. 
what would you say to younger Jillian? I would say it's okay. You're you're doing fine. It seems bad, but you're doing okay. What is your favorite ice cream flavor? I like coffee Oreo, and I'm actually about to get some after we get off this call. Yes, to celebrate. <laughs> <laughs> what is a light bulb moment you had during this journey? When I realized that my story is not unique to me, and that might sound like a bad thing, like I'm not special, but it's good to not be special because I realized that I'm not alone. And when I started sharing, other people with suicidal thoughts wrote to me and, and told me they felt the same way. And I didn't know that that was normal. So I think that part was the best. I love that. What parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about ditching the booze? I would say if you're worrying that you might have a problem with drinking, it's because you know deep down in your heart that you do. And it's okay if you do. And it's better on the other side. Before we depart, give listeners your own. You may have to say adios to booze if lying. So you might have to say goodbye to alcohol if you are obsessing about moderation every single day and you spend most of your time thinking about your drinking. Yes. Thank you, Jillian. I loved having you. I loved our chat and I can't wait to share this with everyone who listens to the show. Thank you for having me. Take care. Enjoy that ice cream. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Very well, team. That's a wrap for our interview today. And before I say adios, I want to leave you with a little poetic share. Our team member, Alan, wrote a beautiful poem on connection, and I loved it. I made him share it with me. I made him share it with other people. And ultimately, I asked him if he would be willing to record himself and share it with us here on the show. So this is Alan. I really hope you all enjoy his poem, and I'll see you guys in a minute. Connection is the Key, written and read by Alan Copeland. For so long, I was looking for the key that would open up the door to a better life, a new life, one that wasn't spiraling into oblivion. A dark abyss of anxiety, depression, self-loathing, and fear. The bottom was as far as I could keep falling, no rope to grab, no hand to grasp. A true free fall with gravity doing what gravity does. A downward spiral. Where is that fucking key? What's on the other side of that door? Will I ever find what it's like to be free from this room that's closing in on me? Wait, can I buy the key? Yeah, that's it. That's it, I'll buy it. Wait, where do I buy it? Amazon? Is there an app out there? If I Google it, it'll tell me, right? Or how about I make the key? Yeah, I'll make it to fit the door. I really can do this alone. Wait, how will I make a key when I can't even find the door? I was all alone, and to feel truly alone is paralyzing. Being alone in addiction and pending sobrieties of fear that I've never experienced before. Please, please, someone help me find the key. 
I never found that key, but luckily it found me. And finally, I finally opened the door, the door to a better life, a new life. You see, connection is the key. To say I'm grateful for connection doesn't give it the credit it deserves. The key was with a group of individuals that I had never met, never would have met, and in many cases, I still haven't met. Connection is the key. True connection is something I had never defined or even thought about. But when you can share experiences, challenges, and growth with another person that is also battling the raging bitch of addiction, well, that's a connection that's hard to put into words. I've now experienced true connection. The ability to tell a person, I see you, I hear you, I understand you, and you are loved. Connection is the key. The key to learning who I am, who I really am. It's not easy, but when you have someone to lean on, someone who catches you when you fall, someone who feels the feels with you, cries with you, and best of all, laughs with you, authentic self to self, well, we realize we can't do this alone. Connection is the key. Connection is powerful. Connection is the opposite of addiction. Let me ask you a question. Have you found the key yet? If not, don't look now. It might have just found you. Remember that you're not alone and together is always better. Recovery Elevator, connection is the key. We can do this. I love you guys. thinking.